the mystery history podcast i'm allison i'm rachel welcome to episode 70 on the nova scotia school for boys in shelburne that's right so this one's gonna be interesting canada what canada <laughs> yeah that's all I you got. know <laughs> canadians don't like whenever you say canadia tell you that well i didn't say that you did so i'm just saying that i know that they don't like it how do you know that because i went to canada and i made a mistake someone yell at you well it was a waitress and she looked pretty pissed i'll tell you that she like that's not funny yeah it's like it's canada i'm like oh okay but apparently clearing that up for me (laughs) but apparently that one before i make a lot of mistakes in life and that's just the way the cookie crumbles. We're all just muddling through. <laughs> we are. So I apologize about that, Canada. My bad. But we're about to give you some justice here. Okay. So before we get into this episode, we have got a little bit of business. Some exciting stuff. Really exciting. I'm excited. Are you excited? I'm, I'm super excited. We're pumped. So if you don't want to hear the business, you can just hit that fast forward button and skip it all and go right to the episode. Okay. I don't want anybody complaining about the business talk because that's happened too. <laughs> okay. So well, first, right. So first <laughs> off, shout out to Jeremy again for the graphics that he's been giving us. They're amazing. We appreciate him so much. He's the man. Every week for forever. Every week for, he's yeah. coming in clutch every Jim. week. Yeah. Over and over. It's perfect. And yeah. And he asked us, he's so kind. And he asked us like, what's your direction? It's like, we don't have a direction. No, 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 no. What did he say exactly? He was like, he didn't, he wanted to make sure that they were part of our, I forget. Dang something it. something he like said, it was just hilarious because we're like yeah we don't creative have that. direction i think creative something. something like that and we don't yeah. have one of those but we do now because we have jeremy and we love him so yeah you're the man thank you he really is and and he is from this area believe it or yeah. not nova scotia not nova our scotia. area no nova scotia from area. nova scotia yes the canadia yeah. canada you just said they don't like it when you do that i don't know jeremy tell me <laughs> what do they like tell me what they like probably canada <laughs> yeah okay moving on like share subscribe and tell your friends so they can join in on this great podcast yeah new listeners we, we love yeah, them we do we hit forty-three thousand downloads which is real good we're doing well we awesome. appreciate all you for listening. Um, another really great thing is our website is back up. It was closed for quite some time, but merch is, that means merch is back. And that means I'm really excited. I'm getting a sweatshirt. Me too. Cause Halloween is right around the corner and you gotta be warm. What? I don't know. Halloween. What do we need a sweatshirt for Halloween? I'm dressing up in a costume. You just mean, cause it's getting cold. Yeah. Like the weather. Okay. 
Got so you. you need to go out and have a bonfire and ooh, it gets a little chilly and you can put on your mystery history podcast zip up hoodie or just a hoodie. We have both. Please do. We have long sleeve shirts. If maybe you're, you're you run hot and you don't need a sweatshirt, yeah, you can do don't that. Need the full hoodie. Yeah, we got options. We do anything you want is yours. Um, I love it. Another thing, Patreon. So with our website being back up, one of the perks that you get from being a Patreon is if you subscribe to the $2 tier, you would get um, 10% off your merch purchases. If you subscribe to the $5 tier, you get 20% off your merch purchases. So purchases. Um, So that's, that's great. Plus right now we're running a promotion. So anybody who decides to join our Patreon we will give you also, we'll send you a free sticker for, uh, joining and you, and you get access to 47 additional, uh, podcasts, not podcast episodes Episodes. of our podcast. Uh, so we we're covering some really awesome topics too, that, that we're really enjoying. So I know uh, some of them, I'm kind of like sad that we don't do like a full release on them. So they're pretty, interesting and special so get over there guys they are they are we just did one on dorothy jane scott which is a very interesting case unfortunately it has not been solved Mm -hmm. so um and some creepy stuff happens in in that episode so so if you you know if it strikes your fancy go over there and and become a patreon we would really appreciate it yeah you want to talk about discord well, we were just talking about Discord and how I need to be more active on there because I get on there and I read everything that people are saying. And then I say, I think I've said like one or two things, but yeah. I want to be more active on there. I don't know. I'm like nervous to, to post things. I don't know why I'm weird. Um, but we added a new channel for suggestions, which is fantastic for books, movies, meetup destinations, all those things. So get out there and start making some suggestions. Um, the link is in our bio on Instagram. And if that doesn't work, you can always message us and we can send you the link. So get on over there and start talking to us and I'll start talking on there. (laughs) Yeah. And we can talk to each other. Um, also I noticed that we, you know, we've been preaching about voice messages. We'd love to hear your voice. Tell us a story, just talk to us. We'll play it on the show. And whenever I post these on, I know for sure on Apple, I'm not so sure on like Spotify, but I think there is a link in the show notes to send us a voice message. Um, if not, you can go to um, Anchor, send us a voice message there, go to Instagram, you can record a message there. We just love to, to hear from you or send us a, just, if you don't want to talk, send us a message um, and we'll, you know, we'll read it on the show if you want. And then you can always rate us and leave a comment on Apple. Have you gotten any voice messages before? I think you have. Yeah. Like yeah, we've one gotten, or two, right? We've gotten like five, I want to say. Oh, mm-hmm. really? Yeah. I don't remember you playing five of them. I yeah, it's them, so though. cool. It's so cool. I love it. I know. It. I, want, I want to get one now that I'm on here. Yeah. That would be nice. I so like that. Be- I think it's neat. <laughs> Let's make Rachel's day because she's never had one before. So we need to yeah, make sure that we can. Message. Yeah. Okay. The last thing and then we're done. This is what we're really excited about. This is the biggest news we've ever had in our lives. The biggest news. We are doing a meetup 
which we've been like Jones and four for quite some time. And um, my uh, Mr. Elias, one of our listeners, he knows some people that own the Brownella cottage in Galleon, Galleon, Ohio. It's about two and a half hours, three ish hours away from us. Uh, but we have locked in the date for that. We are going to be doing an investigation and that is on October 16th, which is a Saturday. Okay. So, um, the plan is to go and meet there probably about like four, four 30, um, the, the investigation, we can start at five, it's six to eight hours. So we're super excited. It's supposedly haunted by the Bishop who lived there and it's listed as one of the most haunted locations in Ohio. It's been investigated by a lot of peer, people who say that they've experienced activity. They have equipment that we can borrow, like an EVP, um, you know, and all that, that fun stuff. So we can record, uh, we'll be doing, you know, we'll do a, a live feed or something like that, which mm-hmm. I've never done before. So it's new. For we're everyone. not very tech savvy either. So we're not give us grace, but we're yeah. going to try to do some cool stuff. <laughs> We are, and we're really excited. So space is limited though. So if you're interested and, um, you know, you want to hang out with us, please let us know, um, send us an email or a Instagram, Facebook message and let us know. Um, I think it's going to be between about 40 and 50 bucks to do this. We're not hundred percent sure. It kind of depends on the people, the amount of people that we have. And then Prior to that, we are thinking about stopping at Ohio State Reformatory and just doing a self-guided tour. So if anybody would be interested in that, Rachel and I would love to have you along for that ride as well. Yeah. I want to meet some new people. Yeah. I'm so excited about this. This is so exciting. I know. I'm very excited about it too. We're going to have a good time. We really are. So, all right. Well, I think you have anything else business related. I think we've hit all the the marks there that we were looking to to talk about. Yeah, I think so. No, I'm good on business. Do we want to get started? Yep. Why don't you start us off? I will. Uh, Because I was like to say, I think I was the one that suggested this topic on our little list. And something that I do sometimes is while working, I'll play, uh, what is that called? Like paranormal caught on camera or something like that in the background some other shows too, you know, I just have stuff on the TV and I saw somebody was investigating this location and they were talking about the location a little bit. And I was like, Oh, this sounds like super creepy and like really tragic and dramatic. And I was like, okay, so I want to do a story on this. And then when I started looking it up, there's really not like a ton of information of what actually went on there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a Wikipedia page, which always makes me a little bit sad because there's, that's always like a good base of information to kind of like build off of. Right. So and really, literally everything has a wiki page. Yeah. I mean, I literally searched specifically for the Wikipedia page because it was like, surely there's a Wikipedia page for this and I could not find one. Um, so really what I ended up doing, the research for this took me a lot longer than they normally do because I read like every news article I could find and kind of pulled from those. Well, definitely pulled from those 
And then um, also there's like an actual government report as part of this. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it was just, I mean, it wasn't as easy to get information as I had hoped. And the story is tragic, but it kind of morphed into something a little bit more, I don't know, just different than what I expected. So I'll go ahead and get us started here. Um, So in September, 1948, at a time when force could be used to correct a child, It could be read in the policies of the Nova Scotia School for Boys. Supervisors are not to strike boys with anything except the regularly prescribed strap, and this should be rigidly enforced. Corporal punishment is administered by the supervisors who have trouble with the boy. He must do it after consulting with the principal. It must be done in the presence of at least two supervisors and must be done with only the prescribed strap. A written report must be submitted by the supervisor who had the difficulty with the boy. A boy is not to be struck with the hand or other instrument unless in self-defense. Corporal punishment could or should come with a reasonable time after misconduct and should not be administered when a supervisor is mad or annoyed. Wow. So I just wanted to start it off with that because that was really the policy uh, for a while at this school for boys. And, you know, I think it is to be said that the policy probably was not always followed. And, um, I don't know, it's just like a good reminder, I think, because when, I mean, our entire lives, corporal punishment wasn't a thing. No, like that was just not something that happened. I mean, I remember our kindergarten principal had like a paddle in his office. Yeah. I remember that paddle too, but he never, I don't think anybody with it. absolutely never used it and like as little children we'd be like oh Mr. Miller Uh (laughs) I heard he hit someone one time or whatever but no I don't think that was ever used so you know it just kind of like is good to bear in mind right from the beginning that for most of the time that the school was open corporal punishment was accepted and I mean really here it says like enforced to use um, as a method. So just to, just to start things off with that. Well, and I wonder, I I feel like whenever our parents were in school, like, okay, so I just Googled when corporal punishment stopped. Yeah. You know, when that was seventies, no 1994. Oh, so that could have happened to us. (laughs) Now, now that was, this is specific to Ohio. So in some, in Pennsylvania states, they stopped, they stopped in 2005. That's when we graduated high school. (laughs) Oh, I definitely would have been slapped. That's crazy. That is. And, and it's interesting, like, I don't know that they have a prescribed, they use the word prescribed strap, yeah. like, and I'm sure they had many and I'm sure they were hanging everywhere to try to use psychology to prevent right. them from acting up. But yeah, that's nuts. Well, I bet the prescribed strap was actually for like safety measures for the boys. Yeah. Like yeah. making sure that you're using something that not I don't know with thumb is, books and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or like a belt with a buckle on it or something. Uh-huh. I don't know, but yeah, I don't know. It's just like interesting. And then gosh, those dates, I mean, that was like five minutes ago. I know. Wow. That is crazy. I seems like it should have been much longer ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but 1995, and I guess like 
it's 2021. Yeah. And I always feel <laughs> like it's like 2000. <laughs> so to me, everything's like, woo, that was like right around the corner. That was so short time ago. Yeah. 2010 to 2020 just feel like they don't, that doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think all of our, like, I think my mom felt that way, you know, like that's just kind of how that works. Mm-hmm. Like well, time always, just picks up so quickly. Yeah. Well, they always say, you know, um, you know, how, how fast time goes, especially whenever you have kids. And yeah. that is so freaking true. I'm, I feel like whenever we were in high school, it seemed to just drag by. And now it's just like in a week at work, like, okay, it's Monday. And it's like, okay, it's Friday now. Like, <laughs> how did that yeah. happen? Yeah. Time definitely has picked up its pace for sure. It is crazy. All right. So in 1961, the then, the then superintendent at the school complained to his boss about one of his counselors, Burton Smith, whose customary practice while lining up the boys in his charge was to go down the line, hitting each one on the head with a piece of broomstick or radiator brush. The superintendent wanted the man fired or at least transferred. Instead, the local Tory MLA, James Harding, who'd helped bring the job generating school to small town Shelburne in the first place, interceded with the then Mr. Minister in charge. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Mr. Smith is a longtime conservative with a very large family of brothers and sisters, Harding wrote, and I feel that anything possible should be done for him to ensure not only his employment at the school, but promotions when they come along. So this is totally acceptable behavior, apparently. Yeah, and you know, this article said that many of those who worked at the school in the 60s and 70s were otherwise totally unqualified for their jobs. And had been hired only because they voted the right way in the provincial election. So, you know, it's, of course, government affiliated and they're doing all of those things. So, you know, yeah, minister and provincial election and things like there's definitely words that I don't know all the time exactly what they mean because it is the Canadian government. But um, yeah, it sounds very familiar to the goings-ons to the South. (laughs) Right. So in 1975, Harding's liberal successor as MLA, Harold Huskelson, who was also the province's minister of social services at the time, arranged for an admitted and then currently under investigation sexual predator named Patrick McDougall to be quietly transferred from his counseling post in Shelbourne to a job as a night watchman with keys to the rooms where children slept at a Cape. Yeah. At a Cape Breton facility for profoundly mentally challenged youngsters. So at the point of him being moved, he was under investigation for being a sexual predator and they they moved him to a place where there are profoundly mentally challenged children and gave him the keys to their bedrooms at night. Wow. Like that makes sense. McDougal was a liberal party supporter. So that explains why he got moved. And it took an official 1991 complaint from a man who'd been molested by McDougal as a child to finally touch off an 18 month 
RCMP investigation that prompted other victims coming forward and blew the lid off the decades of abuse at the school and others like it in the province. So in response, the Provincial Justice Department of the day created an alternate dispute resolution program to compensate victims. Ostensibly, the program was crafted out of a well-intentioned desire to allow victims to tell their story without a public spectacle that could re-victimize them. Well, it sounds like to me, though, that that's not what it was. I think that it was to keep them quiet. Uh, yeah. To pay them off. I mean, it goes like both ways because this really did not go, I think, the way that they expected it to, the government, when they created this alternate dispute resolution program. Mm -hmm. um, so basically what it allowed for was former residents could present unsworn, uncross-examined statements outlining the abuse they claimed they'd suffered and co collect compensation based on that. And they did this based on what became known as a meat chart of types like, and like M -E -A -T. it was like yeah meat. it was it was literally called the meat chart um and it basically just laid out different types of abuse and the duration of that abuse and then like based off of what they say they went through they would get this payout and then with that a lot of them signed agreements stipulating that their allegations would not be investigated by the police uh-huh yep paid so off. if yeah. And, and like at the top, like it said, um, when McDougal came out and they started that one person put the claim and then, you know, more people came out about that. Well, after they did this alternate dispute resolution program, more than 1500 former residents came oh forward with claims of abuse and then nearly 400 current or former employees who themselves were never formally given an opportunity to respond or to refute these claims had allegations come against them. Holy cow. So like none of this got to go through the court of law. Mm -hmm. So this program had a large sum available for the payout. And, you know, I read differing amounts, but I'm pretty sure the reason why they were differing is that I think it like started with $25 million for the payouts. And then like later it grew to like $60 million for these payouts. Well, I bet, yeah, you'd have to increase if you had 1,500 residents coming to this program to collect money for them being abused. Mm -hmm. That is awful. Yeah. Wow. 1,500 people. And you know what bothers me most about like whenever we were talking about um, the Husklinson, the guy, the night watchman guy, he was watching over mentally challenged youngsters so my question would be did they believe those youngsters when they came and well you know what I see mean? that is completely different because it was actually mcdougall who they put over youngsters but that was at kate breton this is only for this uh, nova scotia school for boys so when that person claimed that mcdougall um you know what am I trying to say? Um, you know, abused him. Mm -hmm. That is when things really like picked up for the school of boys, but I, I don't, I don't know about the Breton Cape Breton facility. They just know that that's where he went after abusing all of these boys. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, those 1500 aren't even with that, but you know, 
we're going to have to be really careful with this story because there's a lot of victims on all sides of the story. And sure. when going through these different news articles, you will see claims that those 1500 weren't really all abused necessarily. They think some of them came forward to, get to collect the payout. Yeah. Right. And then you end up with 400 former employees yeah, that have been accused. So that's true too. It that's really just the whole thing is just like a complete cluster. Yeah. So yeah, the next section that we have is a, a government report that they had, um, you know, asked to be done after things kind of went crazy. Okay. And, so this, yeah. so this report is called the Stratton Report. And on December 1st, 1994, the former Chief Justice of New Brunswick, the Honorable Stuart G. Stratton QC, was appointed by the Nova Scotia Minister of Justice to lead an investigation into incidents and allegations of sexual and other physical abuse at five provincial institutions, one of them being the Shelbourne School for Boys. Mr. Stratton began his work on December 2nd, 1994. He engaged Harry E. Murphy, president of Facts Probe Incorporated, and his son, Dwayne P. Murphy, collectively known as the Murphys, as investigators. Harry E. Murphy had been an RCMP officer for 33 years. He retired in 1989 with the rank of superintendent. He had been involved in various kinds of investigation work. Following retirement, he was engaged as an investigator by private industry and government, most notably as one of the lead investigators in the Department of Labor, Labor Investigation of the Westray Mine Explosion. He was well qualified to carry out and oversee complex investigations. Dwayne Murphy did not have prior investigation experience. However, most statements were taken in the presence of both of the Murphys. So this was like just help for him. And I would, I want to say the RCMP is the, I'm going to mess this up, but I think it's the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Oh yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's like their police force. Um, I don't know if it's police, something that starts with a P though, if it's not. <laughs> um, the former Shelbourne School for Boys was the focus of much of Mr. Stratton's investigation. So like I said, like you read, there was five provincial institutions. So not just this one, this was one of five mm -hmm. for this report um, that was done. So Patrick McDougall, a former counselor, had already been convicted of 11 counts of sexual misconduct in relation to several former residents, some of whom had commenced lawsuits against the province. Shelburne was a government-run institution set up to house boys committed to provincial care under the Juvenile Delinquents Act. Residents ranged in age from 7 to 16 years old, but the majority of them were teenagers. The nature of the offenses for which they were committed varied from theft and related crimes to truancy and unmanageability. However, Mr. Stratton noted over the years, Shelburne was also used by the province to house children for whom no other homes could be found. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So it had like a really wide range of, you know, boys there. A total of 69 former residents of the school provided statements to the Stratton investigation detailing 205 incidents of physical abuse 
and 103 incidents of sexual abuse. The nature of reported abuse was occasionally minor, but often more severe. Uh, allegations were made of punching, kicking, striking, fondling, forced masturbation, and oral and anal sex, among other things. Former residents complained that they suffered short and long-term physical injuries, as well as lasting emotional and psychological scars, which often led them into future conflict with the law and alcohol and drug abuse. Some stated that when they complained about their mistreatment, they were accused of lying, beaten further, and sometimes thrown into forced isolation for extended periods of time. A number of the former residents not only reported incidents of abuse against themselves, but also said they witnessed the perpetration or aftermath of abuse on others. So there were kids in there that were trying to help other ones that didn't want to speak up. Yeah. were getting abused as well. Wow. Yeah. And this, so when you think about this, it's 69 residents that they interviewed and they detailed 205 incidents of physical abuse and 103 incidents of sexual abuse. So that's multiple incidents for each kid, like pretty much. Yeah. Yes. A total of 19 counselors were named as sexual abusers. Two were named by more than one complainant. By far the largest number of complainants alleged that they had been physically abused by counselors. As a result of his investigation, Mr. Stratton concluded that sexual and physical abuse had taken place at the school. He did not specifically find how many of the 308 reported incidents occurred, but he commented that leading aside some exaggeration, my investigators were satisfied that in all cases, save perhaps three, the complainants were attempting to recall from their memories and truthfully report events and circumstances that had occurred some 20 to 40 years ago. That would be hard. To try to remember all that stuff. I mean, I can't even remember what I did last week. Now, I mean, these would be traumatic events, but I mean, I imagine if it was me, I'd be spending those 20 to 40 years trying to forget about them. Exactly. I would repress them for sure and shove them way down there. I mean, that's not the, that doesn't mean that's the right thing to do, but that's just me personally. That's exactly what I would do. Right. So it would be hard to recall that. Okay. So the investigators... Uh, believed that one of the complainants may have embellished his story somewhat. Another did not display the usual indications of trauma. And a third gave his statement in an emotional or a highly emotional state and was perhaps for that reason unable to name any of his abusers. In respect to physical abuse, Mr. Stratton found that it could be safely concluded that counselors resorted to physical force to control residents and that they had received direction from their superiors to do so, which we know that they were okay with purple. Yeah, they were. They had a freaking slapstick. Um, It was not until 1978 that there was an express prohibition against the use of physical force. Mr. Stratton concluded that the use of physical force was an accepted method of maintaining discipline and that as a result, it was sometimes open season on the boys at Shelburne. Yeah. So, I mean, how terrible to be in that situation. And, you know, these are boys that already most likely have a very hard life. I mean, up until that point, if most of them either don't have homes and that's why they're there, or if they committed some sort of crime, um, to end up there, 
mm-hmm. it's like, you know, not the answer. Right. Certainly. So it's, I don't know. It's, it's bad. Mr. Stratton further concluded that staff at the school and officials in the Department of Community and Social Services had been aware that abuse was taking place, but took no positive steps to end it, at least until the mid-1970s. And it opened, what, in the 40s? Yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Several former residents said they believed that senior staff at the school had been aware of the abuse and either did nothing or sought to cover it up. As noted above, some also said they complained about the abuse to the staff. Some residents acknowledged that they never reported the abuse, which, I mean, if you get put in isolation or beat more in some circumstances, that really explains why they didn't report the abuse. Absolutely. Yeah. So Mr. Stratton also found that it was not difficult to understand why so few of the residents complained. The boys were committed to Shelburne for indefinite terms. Yeah, so they it's not like they were like, oh, you're here for a year. Right. Uh, the length of which depended on how their conduct at the school was perceived by the staff. Wow. The, so they got to yeah. control everything. Yeah, how long the boys stayed. Wow. Yeah, all of it. The residents were cut off from family and home. They were subject to peer pressure to conform and not be a rat. The more experienced boys also understood that complaints were seldom believed. So they were in a tough spot. Yeah, that is a real bummer. With nowhere I mean, there's to really nowhere. Go. No, you can't. No way is the right way here. Yeah, it seems like your safest bet would be to just take it. And then and, get out. And, and then, then, yeah, do your best to get mm-hmm. out. Yeah. Okay, Mr. Stratton attributed partially partial responsibility for the problems at the school to a serious lack of funding. And we hear this a lot. Like yeah, all with the time. All the time. There was a lack of funding. We couldn't staff, so we had to do the best we could. Um, mm-hmm. which I think should never be the issue, the especially yeah, whenever you're dealing with impressionable uh, yeah yeah children or the handicapped or whatever the case may be we should fund these things it's always the you know the people that need us to take care of them that get in these circumstances where there's not enough funding Mm -hmm. this lack of funding led to four inadequacies first salaries were too low to attract professionally trained employees and only insignificant resources were allocated to on-the-job training. And we've all been there, where you yeah. start a new job and they just kind of throw you in the deep end and you sink yeah. or you swim. And luckily, the jobs that I've been in haven't been, you know, the, the fate of somebody's life in my hands. Yeah. Um, but it, that I, I get that part. As a result, residents were often supervised by inadequately trained staff who had sometimes been hired off the street, possessing only a high school education. uh, Second, the staff to resident ratio was historically too high. In the 70s, in fact, a study concluded that the school was the poorest staffed facility in the country. Third, for most of the period under review, there was no written protocols or guidelines regarding the use of physical force and physical punishment. He also concluded that it was not until 1970 that the use of force except in self-defense or defense of another was prohibited. 
There was also no established practices and procedures for the reporting of physical and sexual abuse. Fourth, the physical design of the facility was inadequate. Whew. The school was initially housed in two refurbished Second World War Navy barracks, and it was only in the late 1960s that construction began on a new permanent quarters. Mr. Stratton also found that the communal living arrangements offered by the dormitory facilities of the barracks were unsuitable for school housing children who often suffered from significant behavioral disorders. He noted that the town of Shelbourne was not centrally located so as to be easily accessible from all parts of the province. This created problems for visits by parents of the residents communication with department officials in Halifax in transporting residents to and from the school. But it didn't, it doesn't sound like they really wanted their parents to be around anyway. Like, like the they school, tried, you mean? yeah, like they tried to cut that off. Yeah. Because the more they were around the parents, the more they would have a chance to probably squeal hey, and say, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, just like how often, like you said, with the serious lack of funding, the ratios for mm-hmm. care, I mean, it always ends up being really low. And, you know, in different different situations, it's sometimes just like making sure that these people were able to feed the people that needed help or, you know, keep them clean. But in this case, like it says, there's a lot of kids that have significant behavioral disorders. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine? It was probably like, kids fighting all the time on top of these people just hitting whoever they wanted like yeah it was yeah I mean it I'm I'm sure it was not an easy position to be in for those and and I was you know it's not this specific one but I've seen interviews with people who have worked in facilities like this and they're understaffed and they say you know I we tried to do the best that we could and I wanted to quit, but I couldn't because these people, you know, were, needed me to be there. And yeah, I wouldn't have anybody to do yeah. like, have even less people to do what needed to be done. And I could also see that, you know, if you're, you're being overworked, you're not paid anything, you feel like some moral obligation to stay in a place I I could see where resentment would build up as well. Like, especially if these kids are jerks Mm because kids can be jerks. Every kid could be a jerk. I was a jerk. And, and I could see where sometimes, you know, (laughs) you might need to smack them on the butt. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you just, so I can, I can definitely see both sides of it. It's just Mm -hmm. a really bad situation for everybody. Yeah, all around, it's just a bad situation. Um, So the examination of the available records shows that 58 former residents were interviewed by the Murphys. Mr. Stratton attended one of these interviews. 11 others supplied information either by way of letter or by statements submitted by their litigation lawyers. Nine of the 69 individuals were referred to by Mr. Stratton as claiming physical and or sexual abuse were complainants in the criminal process involving Patrick McDougall. So in other words, there were 60 additional individuals who came forward claiming abuse by McDougall or other former or current staff. So at the time that this is going on, there's still like current staff 
Yeah. And there are still boys at this place. Mm-hmm. Um, all 69 former residents who claim to have been subject to physical and or sexual abuse were included in Mr. Stratton's report. Yet the coding system employed in the investigation demonstrates that there were far more than 69 individuals who were either spoken to or available to be interviewed. An examination of the victim abuse log demonstrates that there were 193 names entered. 49 of the 193 persons listed in the log denied being a victim of or witness to any physical or sexual abuse. So there was, you know, a group of people that said that they weren't abused and they didn't Mm -hmm. see abuse. As reflected in the investigator's notes, some of these individuals indicated that they had received very good care and that their stay in the institution was a positive experience. In addition, there are 60 additional names of individuals listed as potential further victims of Patrick McDougall, Mm -hmm. but they do not appear to have been contacted. So they weren't on there to, they weren't listed as being contacted. Of the 60, 35 went on to be claimants in the compensation program. Of the 49 who denied being the victim of any physical or sexual abuse, 24 went on to be complaint or claimants in the program. So they tried to get that money. Yeah. So let that sit. So 49 said they weren't abused. 24 of those 49 went and took money saying they were abused. Harry Murphy also prepared a summary for Mr. Stratton of statements made by 84 former residents of Shelburne who had been contacted uh, by the RCMP. Many denied any knowledge of sexual abuse, being a victim or having witnessed sexual or physical abuse of any nature. So it's kind of like, you know, back and forth. Right. Well, and I looked up um, the RCMP and you're right. It's Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Mm-hmm. So there is no record in the materials of any attempt by the Murphys to compare the statements giving to the investigation by persons claiming to be abused with their prior statements to this RCMP. They did not attempt to obtain medical records from the Roseway Hospital in Shelburne. They did not carry out any examination as to whether or not the employees who were named as being abusers were present at the institution at the same time as the person claims to have been abused. So they're not really doing much cross, crossing the T's and dot in the I's here. No. They did not search for institutional records pertaining to residents alleging abuse or, or obtaining employment records of employees named as perpetrators in our discussion, or I'm sorry, in our discussion with the Murphys, they acknowledged that these are steps that would ordinarily be undertaken in an investigation. However, they did not have the time to do so, which is ridiculous. (laughs) The, The Murphys viewed their goal to be the gathering of sufficient information to make a sound assessment of whether or not sexual and physical abuse had gone on at that institution. And they believed that they accomplished that. So why check into any of the shit? Yeah, (laughs) I mean, I think they, yeah, that's the problem. I mean, it really, it's, that that is the problem right there is that they really opened the floodgates. Nobody did the proper investigations. Nobody took this through the court of law the way it should have been. So, yeah. And then with this Stratton report, I mean, they didn't do like due diligence. They didn't go check any of this, but I think that they're right. They have enough information to confirm that there's sexual and physical abuse at the institution, but not 
like they didn't investigate each claim so who knows how much abuse went on well and i wonder like i know that that the whole part of this fund thing is that they didn't go to the court of law Mm -hmm. but my question would be for any of these folks any of these employees that got accused of this stuff did did they get anything on their record could they have just gone to another school like and that's bad in both cases because in one case if it's true and they really did abuse these people then they could just go somewhere else and do it and two if they didn't do anything and something was on their record but they didn't you know properly investigate they could be slung through the mud Mm -hmm. yeah we'll talk about that a little bit later but yeah you're absolutely right on both counts of that Mm. Um, so the records available show that 26 former and seven current employees of Shelburne were interviewed by the Stratton team, including the superintendent and assistant superintendent, neither of whom were the subject of any allegations of misconduct. There is no record of any attempt to contact 10 former employees who were named as having committed some act of physical or sexual abuse. Many employees expressed their view that sexual and physical abuse was not tolerated by any of the staff and that there was a no physical force policy in place. They were indignant at the suggestion that counselors would back each other up or would turn a blind eye to physical or sexual abuse. A number indicated that they had reported the use of inappropriate force by other counselors. Former superintendents recounted examples of staff being disciplined or fired over their use of force. One stated that it became known that a counselor who struck a child was subject to dismissal. Some employees admitted to slapping some of the boys with an open hand, grabbing residents by the arm or scruff of the neck to compel obedience, or to other acts which Mr. Stratton concluded would be considered abusive by modern standards. One staff member, George Allen Guy, also known as Mickey, expressed the view that physical abuse of residents was an accepted way of life at Shelburne during the 1960s, and that boys would be hit if a counselor lost his temper or honestly believed that force could properly be used. He stated that new counselors were told by older ones to hit residents in order to keep control and that staff members would falsify reports on the use of force. He added that things began to change for the better when Barry Costello arrived as superintendent in 1970. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a lot. (laughs) That is a lot. Yeah. So, and I'm, I, I could see totally where staff members would falsify the reports on the force that they use. And, and I kind of see also the aspect of keeping control, trying to, to instill that fear especially if they're short-staffed yeah you're outnumbered if you're if you're short-staffed so I don't know it's kind of a miracle that nobody pulled like a prison break yeah you know what I mean yeah (laughs) yeah yeah so all of that that we just discussed was out of a government document called Mm -hmm. the Stratton Report so which they admitted that Mm -hmm. They didn't investigate or cross-reference anything. They were just collecting data, whether true or not. Yeah, which the Canadian government that put this up never, like, denied that that program they put in place 
was for anything. I mean, they said it was to, to help victims not be re-victimized, mm-hmm. but yeah, it seems like they did that. Things got out of control. The Stratton report was one step in trying to fix the mess they had made with that. And then, yeah, it didn't (laughs) because they didn't really get to investigate everything fully. And even if they had, you know, a lot of these people had already signed something saying they couldn't prosecute, Mm -hmm. which is dumb. Yeah. But they wanted that money. Well, yeah. (laughs) Well, they probably thought that's the only way they were going to get any sort of justice from that situation too yeah especially if they've gone this long you know what I mean without Uh anything so yeah that I mean that makes sense okay after the Stratton report to try and finally once and for all sort out the mess um it had itself created with its flawed compensation process the province eventually appointed yet another outside jurist retired Quebec judge Fred Kaufman to make sense of it all, which he couldn't do. <laughs> After yeah. two years and a 681-page report, Kaufman concluded in 2002, this report cannot begin to separate true and false claims of, of abuse, he said. In the end, everyone suffered. Everyone did. The guards who could never crawl out from under the cloud of suspicion, they were among the abusers, even if they weren't, And the former residents themselves, who are even to this day more likely to be regarded as a scam artist than real child victims of sexual abusers, even when they were. That is perfect. That is a perfect way to say that's exactly how I was feeling. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's completely effed and it's so sad. And, you know, the court of public opinion is everything. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, regardless if they went to court or not, if people thought that you, especially a child molester or an abuser of children, I mean, those are the people that get murdered in jail. Yeah, yeah. Like you are the scum of the earth. Yeah. And yeah. Which you are, if you, it's true. You you did it. You did. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and we, but I mean, I know both of us are like huge proponents for actually going through the legal system. Mm -hmm. I, I just don't like, it's just disgusting. Cause it really like, like you said, yeah, exactly what you were feeling. Best way to say it. There were no winners in this situation. Everybody got effed and you know, how sad for all of these people. So they never would get that justification or, you know, that closure even for themselves. None of it. It's, it's a mess. So from there we're going to talk a little bit about the victims because like we said there's victims on all sides of the spectrum here Mm -hmm. so to start out um one of the news articles i read was this man so like i said there's countless victims on all sides and one of the news articles was interviewing a victim that is still working for justice as recently as 2019 and his name's george paul And he said he's still being victimized decades after suffering abuse at the Nova Scotia School for Boys in Shelburne in the 1970s. Paul and his lawyer, Mike Dahl, were supposed to have a judicial settlement conference um, at the time this article was written. And 
that would be where a judge would help them reach a fair resolution with representatives of the Nova Scotia Department of Justice. But the day before it was scheduled to happen, the provincial reps pulled the plug and his lawyer said, George is really looking forward to that day. He paid his way down from Toronto to be here for it. Uh, and then yesterday afternoon, we got word that the government was not going to attend, that they couldn't get instruction, which I don't know what that means. Maybe be okay to talk. I, I mean, I don't no. know. Yeah. Um, it says this has been built up for over two decades. And today was the day that finally he would have a say and a voice and justice, even though the reason he was sent to the Shelburne facility in the first place was a miscarriage of justice. Uh, he was convicted of damaging a public building but he was in the hospital with two broken legs, a broken arm and a neck fracture at the time he was supposed to have committed that crime. So basically this guy from the beginning wasn't even supposed to be there. Oh my gosh. What, how awful. What yeah. What kind of police department is this? Yeah. I mean, it's a mess. Um, and he said, my medical records would tell the story, paint a picture of the misjustice that I faced during that time period. He was originally from Indian Brook First Nation, um, and he's he had a hard life uh, since he was sent to the reform school in his early teens in, in 1975 and 76. He was sexually and physically abused in the institution, and that experience left him emotionally damaged, obviously. Sure, yeah. And after that, he was in and out of prison, battling substance and alcohol addictions, um, and all through that time, he was, he sought justice. He wrote countless letters, uh, launched legal challenges, and now he's living in Toronto. He took a financial hit to travel all the way to Halifax to attend the settlement conference, just to be told that it wasn't going to happen. Um, and what he had to say about that. And again, this was in 2019. So I don't know where he's at now, but he said, my voice is not only on behalf of me. I do have kids and grandchildren, but also people too, that are affected by the justice system. My voice is based on all of them today. They just trashed it. And I feel like I'm being manipulated again by the system and it costs me a lot of money. Yeah. And he was in, so during that compensation program, he was in prison and he, I, it wasn't that he was ineligible for it as far as I understood, but he like, because he was in prison ineligible for it, but he was not aware. Nobody reached mm -hmm. out to him to let him know that this was happening. So he was not able to be a part of that compensation program because it ended in 96. And I guess during the whole time it was like happening, he was in prison for, you know, something else. What so a tragic story for him, like from the jump, he was screwed. Like yeah. Time and time again at every turn. Right. And then when he thinks he's finally going to have at least, even if nothing came from it, just to have his voice heard by the people, you know, that, that have caused some of these things, they can't mm -hmm. even meet with him. Like, come yeah, on, they man. don't even give him a chance to like, say oh, that's heartbreaking. It is that's sad. Now, on the other side of the spectrum are some of the former employees. And in, in 2000, it was written four weeks ago, the RCMP arrived at Mr. Caldwell's house. For seven hours, they grilled him about abusive acts he is alleged to have committed against Shelburne residents more than two decades ago. Allegations that without benefit 
of proof had already netted the accusers rich settlements paid out by a panicky Nova Scotia government. Mr. Caldwell was shaken, but his humiliating ordeal wasn't over. As soon as the Mounties left, a child protection worker swooped in unannounced. He wanted to know the names and ages of Mr. Caldwell's grandchildren and how often he saw them. A few days later, he interviewed Mr. Caldwell's grandson at school. Then he declared that Mr. Caldwell is too dangerous to be alone with a boy anymore. Dad is heartbroken, said Mr. Caldwell's daughter. Mr. Caldwell asked for his name to be changed in order to shield his family. The boy had seen his grandfather several times a week all of his life and cried when he was told the news. My father is a broken man, says his daughter. How can they do this? Oi. Oh, man, that hurts the soul. Yeah. So he was never like acute. I mean, he he didn't go through any processes. There was no judicial processes for this. It was it was not guilty or innocent until proven guilty. It was you're guilty right yeah. now. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, to add to the tragedy, two former Shelburne employees committed suicide on learning that they had been accused of sexual abuse. After newspapers reported the suicide of one, William Beliveau, about 20 other former residents filed claims against him. So after he had committed suicide and they reported it, 20 more people came forward and said that he, he was, you know, an abuser. Later, Royal Canadian Mounted Police investigators cleared Mr. Bellevue of the original charge. Wow. Yeah. So I mean, I feel like just, though you might maybe he uh did something. I have zero opinion on that. And you know, like I because I don't think I'm qualified to have an opinion on it, and I would never want to say that Vic, like people that came forward and reported abuse were lying. And I won't say that ever because I don't know, but like this dude killed himself after Which, right. nothing being yes. through the court. And then they, they dropped the original charge. However, so, and I understand your point on that. And I agree. And yeah. I made a snap judgment. You're fine. Which could or could not be true. Right. However, my, I don't have much faith in this. Anything. Investigator (laughs) dropping the charge. To me, that really doesn't mean anything because. Yeah. And you know, I don't know about this. So like the 20 other former residents filed claims against him after, you know, I don't have dates on this. I don't know if that was when that compensation program was still going on. And maybe again, I am not saying this happened, so do not come at me, but you know, they were like, Oh, he's dead now. So there's a person to pin this on for me to get my money. You know? Yeah, that could be true. There's so many, there are so many things that could have been at play here. And we just don't know. I mean, we just have no idea. And I mean, obviously, yeah. And obviously there was abuse there, but the government really screwed up with this compensation program, not letting people go through the courts. Everybody got screwed. Yeah. Like including the people that got money out of it. They didn't get to uh, like go through the process of accusing somebody and seeing justice served to that person. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and then potentially getting a compensation for the abuse that they had to go through at the hands of the government in the first place. And how I want to, not that it matters because you can't put a price on justice, but I wonder how much with how many claims that they got, what kind of payment does that look like? Because is it like over your whole life? Is it here's 2000 bucks? We don't want to hear from you. So remember that meat chart, I should have added this on here, but I wasn't sure how accurate the information was that I was reading because the place where I saw this, I was like, eh, questionable, but it, but it said like physical abuse was a certain amount and then sexual abuse was a certain amount. And I know the sexual abuse said like $125,000 and that was okay. more than the physical abuse. And it was also like a chart of how long Long. or often the abuse took place. So it could be more or less than that. Um, But yeah, I mean, they used this chart to determine compensation for 1500 people that came forward. So, I mean, gosh, it was just, I don't know. I'm all heated about it, but like all around, just like such a tragic story for everybody. And even if like, even if you were only abused one time, which I'm saying only in quotation marks, like any time is terrible. However, if you have this chart, why wouldn't you just say it happened a hundred thousand times? I mean, you already, Mm -hmm. you know, you already had to go through that pain. Even if it was once you might as well. I mean, I I don't don't know, know. dude. I don't know either. No, either. It's a mess. It is a and mess the and you can't blame them. You can't, yeah, you can't blame them for like, Hey, here's my meal ticket. I'll get $125,000 and I'll be good for a little while after probably, even if it, they weren't abused, not living in the best conditions. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I who know. knows? There's so many things at play here and it's so like just all around again, very tragic. So like, yeah. I thought this was going to be a really like forward case, but then it, when I got into it, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe the the government decided to do this program. And then like, what a freaking circus occurred afterwards. It's a mess. It's, it is a mess. And you and know, it's still a mess after it is. this long. It's not yeah. resolved. I mean, it's not this poor person in 2019 is still trying to get you know, some, some form of justice for the abuse that he went through. And it's just like, oh my goodness gracious. And in 2000, I mean, the guy who's now not allowed to see his grandchild, like alone. I mean, he's allowed to see his grandchild, but not alone. But still like, think about, think about you right now. Okay. Somebody came at you and said, Hey, you know, uh, you can't see your kids alone because you could have abused them with no basis to and that, that that that's just it you don't even get to fight it like nope over my dead body right that's how that would go it's terrible and I mean I saw other interviews of people that previously worked at that at the boys home and it's like they can't find jobs they yeah. can't get lines of credit like they couldn't get lines of credit you'd have to move they you'd formally look out of the country yeah you would have to I don't know it's insane so yeah they really screwed the pooch on that one like all all sides yeah yeah it's it's a mess it's very sad so uh but yeah 
Do you have anything wow. else to add? I mean, I don't crazy, like right? that was deep. I'm whew, that's emotional. Yeah. It is. It's sad. So anyone listening, if you guys have any more information, because like I said, I read a few, like a handful of news articles and that was really where I got and the government report. I mean, I, that took me forever to read. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, if you guys have any other information, uh, share it with us because I would love to know more if there's anything available that you guys know of. Um, But to cite my sources, I use Nova Scotia dot ca which is where the government report came from um stephen kimber wrote an article for the halifax examiner that i read and used uh, fact.on.ca which is the globe and mail and then saltwire.com all right well there you have it yeah. we hope you enjoyed this very emotional episode 70 <laughs> yeah heavy yeah very heavy um so We hope you have a fabulous week. Yes. And we will see you next time. Bye, guys. Bye.